Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and delve into the challenges and impact of each technology in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The INVOS monitoring system should not be used as the sole basis for diagnosis or therapy and is intended only as an adjunct in patient assessment. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise noted. The speakers are responsible for all content and any necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for this speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on the value of NEARS in clinical practice in the NICU. How can the use of NEARS be valuable in clinical practice in neonates? To help provide insight into this topic is Dr. Scott Duncan, Professor and Chief Division of Neonatal Medicine, Department of Pediatrics at University of Louisville School of Medicine. This talk will be a little bit different because we're going to integrate the clinical utility of near-infrared spectroscopy with elements of Cotter's change management. John Cotter is an emeritus professor at the Harvard Business School and is well known for his international bestseller, Leading Change. The current slide shows the eight steps in change management. First of this is increasing urgency, the need to actually make change, followed by building your team, developing a vision, provide communication for buy-in, empowering members of the team and stakeholders, creating short-term wins, don't let up, and finally making change stick. We'll go through some of these, but not everyone individually, but we'll certainly, we'll pull elements out of Cotter's change management as we go throughout the idea of how you implement near-infrared spectroscopy into your unit. The first of these is creating a sense of urgency. It's actually an idea where you wanna get people to actually see and feel the need for change. Why focus on urgency? Because without it, any change effort is ultimately doomed to fail. I use this a lot of times when I'm very first starting the idea of how to create change and implement near-infrared spectroscopy into the neonatal ICU. You'll first notice that this isn't even in the neonatal ICU. This is a study that was out of PICU by George Hoffman, published in Anesthesiology as an abstract in 2006. What Dr. Hoffman did is over a four-year period, he was recording base excess events, that is biochemical shock, as he was deploying NEARS monitors. And what he noted was from a period of 2003 to 2007, over 446 base excess alerts of some sort or another during this deployment time. You'll see the red line represents the number of events that occurred over time where the black line represents the numbers of monitors that are deployed. And as you see, as he continued to increase the numbers of monitors, the number of those base excess alerts declined. And why would that be? Well, that would simply be because they were reacting to the information provided by the near-infrared spectroscopy monitors before the patient could get and find themselves in trouble. 
So if you look pre-NEARS, the number of events averaged about 18 per month. Post-NEAR deployment, they averaged about 11 events per month. And the lag between bringing a new monitor in and seeing an alteration in the number of events was somewhere between zero and one months. At the time this was published, the number of events were less than eight per month. When we think about biochemical shock, when we think about base excess events, we think about the types of things that we normally study. We normally study pulses. We normally look for oliguria, for color change, for cold extremities, pulse oximetry, delayed cap refill, acidosis, increasing lactic acids, increasing creatinine. But these are all late indicators of shock. And in fact, if we put these indicators of shock over a timeline, what you'll see is, is that the first thing that shows up is alterations and regional saturation monitoring. There's a reason we use two monitors for this because the first stage in shock actually ends up being a redistribution of the blood supply. You'll spare your kidneys, your gut, uh, you spare your brain, your heart, your adrenal glands at the expense of your kidneys and your gut. And so monitoring cerebral saturations and renal saturations concurrently, when you see the renal saturations start to fall, that's a first indicator of that redistribution of blood supply. As you move across this timeline from left to right, you'll see that within hours, minutes to hours, you'll see delayed cap refill, followed by cold extremities, followed by decrease in oxygen saturations, arterial saturations lactic acidosis, metabolic acidosis, hypotension, oliguria, eventually leading to hypotension and cardiac arrest. But look, this is all the way down the timeline. Your first warning indicator ends up being that regional redistribution of blood supply. So when we think about the cerebral values, we can also follow what happens over time um, looking at cerebral regional saturation values in an animal model using a piglet. The cerebral desaturation of NEARS generally precedes signs of neuronal dysfunction. In this model, we see deterioration over time with decreasing cerebral regional saturation values. First, lactate accumulation when the saturation was at 44%, followed by EEG changes when the saturations were at 42, EEG silence at 37, and loss of ATP production when the regional saturations were down around 33%. This was also a study that was done by Dr. Hoffman and published in the Annuals of Thoracic Surgery in 2006. So only in this NEARS technology provide the continuous quantitative signals of the physiologic variables most related to injury and most amenable to intervention. So next within our change management is the idea of communication and education to your providers. We can look at near-infrared spectroscopy monitoring in two different ways. First one is the use of a routine monitor, such as another vital sign, or in response to a particular disease state, such as an anemia. You can use it proactively, that is before their clinical sequelae, and try to minimize any injury of tissue. You can use it as the responsive monitoring, typically occurring after clinical sequelae and tissue injury is underway. 
So the different approaches that we take, and we'll get into a little bit further along is, is in certain situations, we try to use this monitor for routine monitoring at higher risk patients, as you'll see. Different regional beds have different normal extraction ratios and circulatory control mechanisms. The brain is a high extraction, intense auto-regulation, flow metabolism coupling organ for the kidneys and the mesentery at baseline is low extraction. And the flow is highly influenced by autonomic tone. These two organs represent opposite poles of regional circulation and the near system can simultaneously monitor these to track each one or to leverage the associations between them. I already implied this at the beginning when we talk about redistribution of blood supply at the expense of the kidneys and the gut. This is when you'll see the regional saturation monitors. If you're using renal saturations, you'll see them start to fall before the brain will start to fall, saturations will fall. So in the regional renal saturations, changes in this perfusion are early indicator of shock. For changes in cerebral saturations are typically a late indicator of shock. So monitoring of two or more beds, the other thing it does is it allows for reduction in interpatient variability because the patient will establish their own baseline and it detects the changes, detects the changes in the distribution of perfusion. So our targets and thresholds, we express regional saturation values as numerical values and look at percent change from baseline. I've already mentioned the patient is his or her own control. And clinical decisions are based on the patient's unique physiology and clinical situation. And a healthy cerebral saturation would be somewhere between 58 and 82 with intervention thresholds less than 50 or a decrease of 20% from baseline a critical threshold at less than 40 or plus or 25% from baseline. Also recognize that these are valuable for patients with differing physiology. Consider, for example, a patient with cyanotic congenital heart disease. These whole numerical sets may be a little bit lower, but as that patient establishes its baseline, and that's an important thing to do on your monitor is to establish that baseline, you look for that percentage change. That patient, if you look at the absolute value compared to a normal term baby or a baby who perhaps has respiratory distress, you'll see that baby with congenital heart disease have a lower baseline to start with, but look for that percentage change. You wanna get short-term wins at the beginning. You wanna begin at the beginning. You wanna start with cases that you understand the physiology behind it and monitor those cases first. Here's some of the applications that we use at Children's Hospital in Louisville. Uh, on the left in the blue panel, for example, we use it on all neonates with complex congenital heart disease. We use it to monitor regional oxygenation and term neonates. We use it for oxygenation at the transition period after birth. We use it in preterm babies. We use it in HIE patients. We use it in any case of hypotension, particularly if they're acquiring pressure support. We use it in big kids with pulmonary hypertension. We use it on patients who are going on ECMO. So we have a whole laundry list of types of things that we would typically use near infrared spectroscopy on. There's a whole nother area that's being investigated 
oxygen is now becoming more mainstream. We're beginning to use the oxygen, uh, cerebral oxygenation and renal oxygenation in preterm infants with patent ductus arteriosus, who we think are, are requiring either medical or surgical um, or uh, occlusion of the PDA. We are beginning to use it more and more in neonates with respiratory distress syndrome. It certainly has been studied in babies who uh, develop periventricular and interventricular hemorrhage and the ability to perhaps predict whether that hemorrhage is going to occur. Can use it and it's being studied in babies with apnea and bradycardia, which we kind of pay attention to if they're numerous, but nobody's really sure what those couple of three episodes per day really means can use it for splanchnic for perfusion, and we can use it as a biomarker for red cell transfusions and also as a response to your red cell transfusions. While the NEARS monitor can indicate an abnormality, clinicians gotta understand the possible underlying cause of desaturation events. I like to think of this in terms of economics. The only thing I learned in economics was supply and demand. And when I try to break this down, I think it's as simple as supply and demand. When you think about supply, you think about things like increasing the delivery and increasing the oxygen content. Those are the two basic components I think of in supply. You can further break those down when you're monitoring this slide looks at cerebral oxygenation. You can further break these down into physiologic factors that will increase cerebral perfusion, such as pushing your blood pressure up, pressure agents, using uh, uh, agents to increase your systemic vascular resistance, increasing your cardiac output. You can think about ways to reduce cerebral vascular resistance by raising the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. You can increase the oxygen content simply by transfusing pack cells in order to get increased oxygen carrying capacity or raise the arterial pressure partial pressure of oxygen. And you can decrease the utilization. It's pretty simple. If you want to decrease the metabolic rate, you want to control hypothermia and you want to provide sedation. You can use the same basic schematic of supply and demand and thinking about how supply and demand influences the organs when you think about the kidney as well and do the different types of things to increase the blood supply, to increase the oxygen content, to reduce vascular resistance, to reduce the metabolic rate. It all boils down to those two components and then separating out individually what the individual moves you may want to make in order to make corrections to the current situation. When you institute near infrared spectroscopy, you have to recognize some of the pitfalls. And I certainly have a fair number of examples, but let's just focus on one of the biggest examples going. The NEARS monitor will allow you to mark events, and that is very useful when you're trying to figure out what's going on with a patient. If you look at this slide, you'll see that the first marker is the set of baselines. So that baseline was set around 72 or so on the uh, uh, cerebral um, oximetry. You'll see as you move from right to left that there's a mark called such an ET tube. Well, that explains that dip that occurs at about 1600 hours. But then there's a mark that says miscellaneous. Further on, there's a mark that says vent change and bag of mass ventilation. You go further along at about 8 p.m. to 006 hours, that's marked miscellaneous again. Miscellaneous is the label doesn't help me at all. I have absolutely no idea what happened during that time frame. These other ones where they're marked, such an ET2, position changes, change in the vent, 
Those are very helpful when you're trying to figure out what manipulation was made. But the miscellaneous mark, no clue. I don't know if they got pack cells. I don't know if they got volume expansion. I don't know if they got a new uh, ventilator. So when you use the markers on there, be specific as possible um, to place your markers and that'll help you evaluate what's been going on. The other thing I would add is, um, as we approach the end, is there's always an aha moment. And what I'm going to show you was an actual case, and it was one of the first couple of cases that we did um, at Children's Hospital. And this has been a number of years back, so I can thankfully say we haven't had a repeat of this type of a case before. This is probably the third, maybe the second case that we ever did. So as I already mentioned, as you begin selecting babies to study, start by choosing an infant that has a really well-identified and understood physiological process, which allows confirmation by near-infrared spectroscopy. It helps develop that understanding and comfort level. This case was a case of transposition of the great vessels in a term infant. So as we look at the left-hand column, you see the regional saturation values, the renal are in purple, the cerebral are in uh, green or teal. Uh, my wife would call it teal, maybe it has another color to it. You can see the timeline at the bottom that runs from about 1300 hours to about 2200 hours. At approximately 26 hours of age, this patient was awake and breathing and alert, was in room air with pulse oximetry being about 86%, vital signs were a temp of 99.7, a heart rate of 178, respiratory rate is 86. Blood pressure 63 over 33, arterial gas is 7.41, CO2 of 30, O2 of 38, a base deficit of 5, and a lactate of 2.8. The infant started to develop a decreased urine output with a temp of 101.8, and the infant was tachycardic with a heart rate of 204. The rest of the vital signs and the arterial gas was unchanged. Patient's total fluids were increased at a temp per kilo bolus of normal saline was given with an improvement in urine output and an increase in somatic oximetry. At about 32 hours of age, the registered nurse who was taking care of the baby noticed a decrease in blood pressure. The baby really remained, looked relatively stable, it was still a little kidneyed and tachycardic, but in no overt distress, awake, looking at the room, sat for 86% on room air, arterial gas 45 minutes earlier, showed a pH of 744, CO2 of 25, O2 of 34, a lactate is now 3.7, so it was beginning to rise. More volume was given at this time. Approximately 15 to 30 minutes later, the infant becomes apneic and unresponsive to vigorous stimulation. Patient's intubated and put on positive pressure ventilation. Pulses are barely palpable. Got another bolus of normal saline, got epinephrine. Arterial gas revealed a pH of 711. The CO2 is now 16. Base deficit's 24, lactate's 19. Pulses electrical activity ensued. Chest compressions were begun. Baby was resuscitated. Despite aggressive cardiopulmonary resuscitation, many doses of epi and other code drugs, the patient continued to have pulseless electrical activity, was emergently placed on ECMO. After ECMO, ventricular fibrillation ensued, the patient was cardioverted and then developed asystole and was subsequently pronounced after failure to respond. An autopsy did not demonstrate a cause of death for us.
Well, I don't know if you can see the arrow or not on here. I suspect that you can't. But if you look somewhere in the neighborhood of about 16, 20 hours, progressing through about 19, 30 hours, you're going to see a downward trend on those renal saturations. You'll also notice there's a slight downward trend on the cerebral saturations. You note that there really wasn't a lot in the way of interventions that were made during that time period. By the time the, the graph is marked, RN notes the downward trend in the blood pressure, you're doing multiple manipulations, eventually results in intubation, resuscitation, and a trial ECMO. You can see the rapid decline in the regional saturations at that point. But I would challenge you and say that we should have figured out at about 420, when we started to see this downward trend between 420 and 730 in the evening, we should have noted that downward trend and made more aggressive interventions at that point in time. I can't tell you that it would have made a difference in the outcome, but I'm telling you the signs and the signals were there for us to do something about it. This was a number of years back and we haven't had a repeat episode of this again, but I, I, I bring this forward just simply as the aha moment. This is when we recognize the utility of the near-infrared spectroscopy and the need to intervene. It's not going to tell you what you should do, but it's going to tell you to get up, go look at the patient, make an overall assessment, take supply and demand again, and make an intervention that can improve this baby's care. So the benefits of near-infrared spectroscopy and neonatology is you immediately reflect upon the impact of the interventions. It provides a piece of objective data versus indirect measurement or a subjective assessment. It shows you real-time physiology and changes going on in the tissue bed of interest. Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. Thank you for listening.